I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, December 6th, 2022. Coming up, journalist Madeline Ostrander will discuss her new book, At Home on an Unruly Planet, Finding Refuge on a Changed Earth. We begin with a look at some recent news in science. If you've been wearing a mask to limit your exposure to COVID, you may have wondered about the efficacy of the so-called medical or surgical masks compared to N95 respirators. Medical masks may offer less protection because they fit more loosely and don't filter as effectively, as opposed to N95 respirators that are fit tested and provide greater filtration. Well, you don't have to wonder any longer. A large, multi-site, randomized clinical trial enrolled 1,100 healthcare workers from 29 healthcare facilities in Canada, Israel, Pakistan, and Egypt to answer this question. The study began in May 2020 and lasted through March of this year. These healthcare workers provided direct care to patients with suspected or confirmed COVID-19. The participants were randomly assigned to wear either a surgical mask or N95 for the 10-week study duration. The researchers collected nasal swabs from all participants and then used PCR to confirm cases of COVID. They found that 10.5% of the roughly 500 participants in the medical mask group contracted the virus versus 9.3% of about 500 in the 95 respirator group. In other words, no difference. So you can take your pick. I know what I'm choosing. This study was published last week in the Annals of Internal Medicine. For How on Earth, I'm Beth Bennett. We shall refrain from sound effects as we share with you a new idea for contagious disease detection from the Acoustical Society of America. Maya Gatlin from the Georgia Institute of Technology presented this idea yesterday afternoon at the Acoustical Society's annual meeting in Nashville. She titled her presentation, The Feces Thesis, Using Machine Learning to Detect Diarrhea. The American Association for the Advancement of Science news release about Gatlin's idea has been titled, Listen to the Toilet. It Could Detect Disease. The subtitle is that a microphone sensor and machine learning can classify excretion events, identify cholera and other bowel diseases, all without identifiable information. So, yes, this new technology proposal involves tucking a tiny microphone into a toilet, then letting artificial intelligence determine whether a person's visit to the bathroom results in a series of sounds that are evidence of diarrhea. For medical scientists and epidemiologists, Diarrhea is more than just an awkward social event that is best dealt with in private. Diarrhea can be an early warning about some very serious infectious diseases. So, if a microphone were placed on toilets in a public restroom, then the machine learning software could send data that doesn't identify who made what sound, but can provide simple, low-cost ways to alert health officials to be watching for an uptick in serious disease. How, you might wonder, do acoustic scientists train their microphone-assisted early warning devices to identify a worrisome toileting event? 
Apparently, Gaitlin and her team used online audio files of various, quote, excretion events, unquote. For example, and I quote from the science news release on this topic, urination creates a consistent tone, while defecation may have a more singular tone. In contrast, diarrhea is more random, unquote. Cholera is the disease which the Georgia Tech researchers are most interested in identifying early. Every year, millions of people suffer from this bacterial illness and over 150,000 people die. If there could be a low-cost anonymous audio detection of rising diarrhea events, the researchers contend that much of this sickness and death might be avoided. For How on Earth, I'm Shelley Schlender. You're listening to KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. For those of us fortunate enough to have a roof over our head and a safe home environment, the concept of home generally invokes feelings of comfort, refuge, security. But climate change is forcing many people and whole communities around the world to abandon their homes. And it's forcing us all to rethink what home could and should be in the future. Our guest today is Madeline Ostrander. She's a freelance science journalist who's been exploring how climate change is affecting people and communities now, and how some people are fighting to preserve their place called home. Madeline's new book is called At Home on an Unruly Planet, Finding Refuge on a Changed Earth. The author reflects on what it means to make a home, indeed feel at home, in this era of upheaval and change. The book has been designated as one of Kirkus Review's 100 Best Nonfiction Books of 2022. As a journalist, Madeline's articles have appeared in High Country News, Audubon, and Hakai magazines, as well as TheNewYorker.com and several other outlets. She's also the former senior editor of Yes! Magazine, and she joins us via phone from her home in Seattle, Washington, actually via Zoom. Madeline, welcome to How on Earth. Hi, thanks for having me. So great to have you. So um, I just want to start with the title itself, At Home on an Unruly Planet. This is clearly different from a lot of books, very important, but more 30,000 feet above, sort of polemics about climate change. Here you're really bringing out people and homes, but I'm curious how you came to the title itself, and for that matter, this kind of focus. I think the title was a little bit of wordplay, and I think that it was a way of inviting people in to talk about climate change without it seeming so overwhelming and scary. Um, unruly is a, a word that I like very much. It has a lot of different meanings. Um, one of the older meanings is actually stormy. And of course, we're uh -huh. entering an era of greater storminess. Um, it also you know, refers to the ability the difficulty that we have to control something. And I think, you know, one of the issues of the climate crisis is that we're living in a more and more uncontrollable, unpredictable era. And also, I think that, you know, there's a way in which the roots of this crisis have to do with our 
um, an ability to to reckon with the fact that we you know we can't always control everything we can't always um, you know endlessly burn fossil fuels and ha- create the kind of reality that we desire we have to live within limits and the planet has limits and so I think that's also part of the choice of that word. Interesting. Um, And you note that just more and more people are being dramatically affected by weather extremes, be they severe drought, megafires, catastrophic flooding. And you point out in the book that I think it was in 2019, nearly 25 million people around the world were forced to relocate because of the impact of climate change and other natural disasters. And one and a half million of them in the Americas. Um, I'd be curious, could you tell us, like zoom in on one of the, I think, four communities in particular that the book focuses on and how you chose that and something about the people there? Well, so the book focuses on four different communities and I think that they come partly out of my my long interest in trying to translate climate change into to a scale that people can understand. So the scale of home and community and what's happening in the places that we live seems like an especially poignant, important place for people to understand what the climate crisis Mm -hmm. means for them. Um, I guess if you want to talk about climate refugees and people are having to relocate, one of the places I focus on very closely is the community of New Talk, Alaska, which was um, called about a decade ago was called America's First Climate Refugees, along with a few other communities in Alaska, because New Talk has been facing really catastrophic erosion along a river that's made worse by the destabilization of the permafrost, so the layer of frozen ground that underlies a lot of Alaska that was supposed to be permanently frozen, that's why it's called permafrost, is becoming thawed and that community has been trying to plan a move for a couple of decades now because that erosion problem and combined with the warming and the impacts of it are getting worse and worse. They're having more and more storms. But I chose that community because it's also um, really all four communities that I describe in the book in detail are examples of places where there's really Im- impressive forward-thinking work to think to consider how we confront these kinds of crises and new talk has been one of the most organized communities in the country in terms of trying to pull together funding and really relocate on mass as a community and build and, different kind of infrastructure that they can use to you know live in a very and, and this community so, is on the chukchi sea right is it right on the coast or kind of inland, but still subsiding because of permafrost thawing? It's very close to the Bering Sea. It's a little bit sort of inland, but it's very coastal. I mean, you know, it's um, the the rivers are are influenced by the coastal system and it's right along a very large river called the Ninglik River. It's traditionally a seal hunting community Mm -hmm. and a fishing community. And then still that community is quite traditional in its um, reliance on the tundra and its reliance on subsistence food. And that's a huge part of the culture and one of the reasons why it's so vital for them to remain in that region and to be able to stay together as a community. And are some in the community already relocating or this is sort of the foreboding reality of their future? Yeah, about half of New Talk has relocated across the river to a place about eight or nine miles away called Naktivik, 
um, which was also a traditional camp for Newtok. And um, they've built a series of really impressive energy efficient houses over there um, and a runway and a, a barge landing and a lot of other things that the community needs. But the other half is still stuck on the other side of the river. And this fall, they just went through Typhoon Murmok, which was caused catastrophic flooding in a lot of Western Alaska mm. and put them in a very dire acute situation with the erosion now where they really need to relocate as soon as possible. Um, so, I mean, that, that community is in a difficult place right now. They did just a few days ago get an announcement that the federal government is going to give them, the Department of Interior is going to give them millions of I'm hopeful that they'll be able to get across soon. So they're kind of mid mid process. Interesting. Yeah. In fact, that was one of the headlines before this show began. So this is this mm-hmm. is quite recent news that they are getting mm-hmm. some federal funding anyway, right? Yeah. And, and yeah, I'm curious, it... besides the funding, you know, it's easy to see and important also to see sort of these climate refugees as victims, but also like how, in this case, you already have a community split because half of it has relocated, even though it's eight to nine miles away, it's not forever away. But do you mm-hmm. get a sense of how is this really affecting community? It's one thing to say, gee, we'll pay to relocate you. It's another when your whole life has been in this small area yeah. and home has been very, very, very place-based. Yeah. I think... One thing um, is it's important to um, keep in mind that the community also has a, has a lot of agency and has been very proactive in advocating for itself and in envisioning the move and in mm-hmm. um, organizing itself to get to get help and to find partners and to um, you know make this transition across the river and that's one of the reasons that they've um, accomplished more on their relocation than a lot of the other communities um, that are still struggling to move. Um, There's communities in Louisiana and other communities in Alaska that have been trying to relocate that haven't gotten as as far along in the process. You mean because Um, so many in the community are have been taking charge and been more proactive in the planning stage, not just you will wait for the so-called leaders to tell us where to go. Yeah, I think New Talk also had someone for a long time who was dedicated to overseeing the relocation. They hired a person who was very organized and very hardworking, and he spent a lot of years working to get the community funding and to to make that transition. Um, but yeah, I think the community has been really vocal about getting what it needs, and it's had to because it's it's way out there in one of the most remote parts of the United States. Um, In terms of the split between the community, it has been really challenging for people to be on the opposite side of the river from their cousins and friends and neighbors and relatives. And um, one of the things that happens in this region of Alaska is that there's a season called um, there's a season called freeze up and there's just there's a, a summer season, but there's this season in between when things are still in the process of being frozen and it's very difficult to travel in that season just Mm. the landscape is a little too unstable people usually go around either by boat or by snow machine and it's just not stable enough to do those things at that time and so people really get kind of stuck at home in those moments and so when the community is split 
they can't travel very easily back and forth during that time of the year to see each other. And that time of the year is also becoming longer and more unpredictable because the seasons have been changing so much. So, I mean, Alaska just this week has been very unusually warm and that's also making it difficult for people to travel both in Utah and other parts of Alaska. I bet. I'm just going to break for a bit. Um, for those who are joining us, uh, you're listening to KGNU's Science Show. I'm host Susan Moran, and I'm talking with Madeline Ostrander about her new book, At Home on an Unruly Planet, Finding Refuge on a Changed Earth. I'm curious, um, many here in Colorado, especially here on the front rains, we have the anniversary, one-year anniversary about to come up of the so-called Marshall Fire here in Boulder County, uh, raging fire, the most destructive in Colorado's history. And it has been linked to climate change to the extent that human-caused climate change is ushering in warmer and drier conditions in the interior West that have set the stage basically for natural, so-called natural disasters like the Marshall Fire. And one of the cases that you look at, it's not here in Colorado, but uh, sort of east of the Cascades, right, that was hit by mega fires. Maybe if you could zoom us in on that and some takeaways from from that case study and, and particularly some of the real activist leaders in the area. Yeah, so I tell the story of Okanagan County, Washington, which is the part of the state that has experienced the largest fires on record in Washington state. In 2014, they had the Carlton Complex fire, which is still the largest single fire on record in Washington state. In 2015, they had a series of also enormous mega fires. Um, and again in 2020, and, um, you know, it is part of a fire adapted ecosystem, a, a fire adapted part of the world. But as you've said, climate change is stoking the conditions so that the fires are getting ever larger, they're getting harder to suppress and control, um, and communities are having to live with near constant threat of fire and having to both be prepared and also think about how to recover. And I wanted to write about some of that journey, both, both about how a community prepares and things that we can do in the West to become more resilient and also what the recovery journey looks like, because I think that we don't tell enough of those kinds of stories when we talk about climate change. And I think it leads people to feel like they don't, maybe they don't have power or maybe we're helpless in the face of these incredible and frightening disasters. So one of the people I write about is named Carlene Anders. She's a wildland firefighter and has done that work for a couple of decades. And she's an extraordinary person. She was also the mayor of this tiny community for called Pateros, Washington, for a number of years. And she ran a daycare and she runs, um, you know, is putting together a restaurant. And she ran this huge recovery effort around the county that's become a model for other places in the country. Mm, impressive. She, yeah, she travels around and talks to people about what recovery looks like. So I'll, I'll read you, if, um, if you like, I'll read you just a little section about her just to give a sense of, of her as a person. Sure. Um, I, w I went to see her in her town and she took me to this little museum exhibit they had put together to commemorate the wildfires of 2014, which burned down a significant portion of Pateros. So here she is um, walking me through the town. And um, so 
I couldn't observe any evidence of the wildfire, but Carlene gestured to the many things that had burned down and were now gone, as if conjuring ghosts. It was all on fire. You used to have trees and all kinds of stuff between the railroad tracks and the highway right there. We walked through a parking lot and followed a sidewalk, made a stop at her office to collect some keys, then crossed the street to a retail building with a red metal roof and dark windows. It was only temporarily a museum. She and her husband owned the building, she told me, and were planning eventually to open a restaurant there called Fire and Ice in recognition of Carlene's history as a firefighter and ski instructor. The name was also, as her mom would point out, an inadvertent Robert Frost illusion. Some say the world will end in fire, some say in ice. When she opened the glass door and switched on the lights, we were facing a large square mirror mounted in a white wooden frame and propped against a cloth draped stool. Carlene grinned sheepishly as I took a photograph of our reflection. Hand painted across the mirror were the words, welcome to the smoke and reflections exhibit. Stepping farther into the room, we encountered a series of room dividers covered in black cloth with displays of images mounted on them, then a table set with an array of burned and warped metal and glass. Some of the items laid out here were recognizable. A glass bottle with curved and distended neck, shovel end with no handle, but some had liquefied and reformed into the sort of bizarre shapes candle wax can make when it drips. Everything melted, Carlene said. All the radiators, all the cars, all the wires melted in place. Then quietly, she said, this was my mom's stuff. And she goes on to tell me how she lost, you know, her mom and her family lost mm. a number of properties that they own, including a home that her family had helped build by hand um, when she was a kid and how emotional that was for her. But then, you know, how you turn that kind of loss into a journey of recovery and how you, you know, how she was able to, to come together with her community members and rebuild and why it's really important to tell those stories. And so she, she goes on to say, um, uh, I'll just read you another couple sentences. Okay. As she and I walked through the exhibit together, she worried aloud about the complacency that can set in even after a crisis. The problem is, five years down the road, or remember, she reflected, and it's going to get worse. There's no way it's not going to get worse. So we better be prepared, better do as much as we can while we can. Hmm. Powerful. And as you say, to stress out, it's not just the the victims and the loss, but recovery, and not just top-down recovery, but what individuals and groups and communities yeah. are doing. I'm curious, I mean, you yourself living in Seattle, so you've been in the Pacific Northwest for quite some time. I would imagine uh, it's come a long way from the rather cool, misty, reliably misty kind of place. I was there not long ago, and wow, I'd never seen it so smoky for so long. How was... How just looking into things that you have in this book and living where you are, altering your sense of home and what home should be. Yeah, it's been hard. Um, I think that every summer it seems more and more unstable. 
as you said, we used to have these, you know, beautiful, cool, um, often, you know, clear moments in summer when we had this nice maritime breeze and it was mild. And now we're getting more and more seasons when it's both very smoky and also potentially quite hot. We, of course, had the Pacific Northwest heat dome in 2021, which was the most outrageous heat wave that this area has ever experienced. Yeah, right. um, it was something like 108 degrees in Seattle. There were really catastrophic levels of shellfish deaths all around the coast because um, the, the species here are not adapted to that kind of temperature and that kind of exposure. Human losses, heat waves are actually some of the worst kinds of natural disasters uh, in terms of you know their their impacts and in terms of of human life um i think we we underestimate how bad heat waves can be for people so that's scary um and also i think that sense of summer as as kind of a, a time when you know it's really beautiful and you have sort of a break from the winter and the rain and um there's a lot of solace i think that's part of summer here in the pacific mm -hmm. northwest that is becoming disrupted by the kinds of of heat and smoke that we're having and that's been distressing and something that we're all having to cope with here well so much for us to um think about about home itself and not only home but how we create or try to recover or restore the home and home environment that we have lived in. So we're out of time now, but that was journalist Madeline Ostrander talking about her book, At Home on an Unruly Planet, Finding Refuge on a Changed Earth. And it was published in August. Madeline, so much. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Susan. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced by me, Susan Moran, and engineered by Joel Parker. Headline contributions from Beth Bennett and Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Myra Branick. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KJNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran.